I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, an investment advisory practice. I've been an advisor for nearly 30 years, and one of the questions I get asked most frequently is, do I have enough money relative to other people my age? And while that's an interesting question, it's also the wrong question. The right question is, is do you have enough money to sustain your lifestyle for the rest of your life? This is a question you should know the answer to. This is what we do. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our Big Proud American Eagle logo. Welcome back to Pacific Sit Rep. We have a surprise for you today. We have a former, or I should say retired, Naval Officer Commander Salamander is with us today. He is a... Uh, a well-spoken advocate on national security across the media has been, has been doing his own podcast called Midrats since 2010. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you very much, Todd. I appreciate the invitation. So I asked you to come on. You come highly recommended as with knowledge of the Pacific Theater. And, uh, you know, I'm an Air Force guy. I'm not a Navy guy, although we did work with the Navy a good bit back in the day. But uh, First of all, why should we care about the Pacific Theater now? Why, why shouldn't it be Ukraine? I mean, in your, in your opinion, uh, I believe the Pacific's more important. Do you, do you agree with that? I do. I think uh, we've had longstanding interest on the continent since we you know, decided to get involved with it a little over a century ago. Yeah. And of course, we have our, our NATO obligations uh, there, and it has been the habit of the last couple of centuries that when Europe uh, decides it doesn't want to get along with itself, that gets contagious and winds up spreading to other parts of the globe. However, whether you look at military power or economic power or national intent, where is the, uh, the global competitor that is trying to reshape the global order to better suit their requirements? Uh, in my lifetime before, it was the Soviet Union, but that became a, uh, a non-factor in the early 1990s. We've enjoyed a long time of, of not having to worry about our position on the world stage in the international order in conjunction with our other allies that we've created and really for everybody's benefit and has kind of become the expected and the norm from here. You know, the, the Chinese them th themselves have thousands of years of history. They uh, write not necessarily in line with communist ideology anymore, though that's what really enabled them to not just achieve national unity again, but to become strong again. Now they have a different type of structure that's not quite communist, but it's also not free market. Yeah, but they, they are. Just, they just use the communism to stay in power. <laughs> exactly, it's it's the party, and the party is right. where the power is, and everybody is. But they've reached the point that they are being able to reachieve a position that they think they deserve and is rightfully theirs, and that's the challenge in the Western Pacific. That uh, we we fought a war, uh, are the Pacific part of World War II against Imperial Japan. And it was almost a, a running joke back when I was a junior officer, the American Lake of the Pacific. Yeah, right. the Soviet, yeah, the Soviet Pacific fleet that was a nuisance, but that was usually their their second second line ships, and they didn't have much ambition. Not that they would get much past Japan if they did try anything. But the People's Republic of China is something 
very different. And we are a global Navy. We're now the world's second largest Navy, the People's Republic of China. Um, their, their Navy is now the largest. But they also, even though they have a little bit of a global reach, they really are a regional power. And I always encourage people to look at the, what's happening west of the international dateline in that respect is that is China's backyard. Its backyard is kind of constrained and limited. If you look, I would always take, maps are great, but we live off of screens right now. So it's always north, south, east, and west. And there are some great um, maps out there for those that have access to a globe or a paper map. Always encourage people to rotate that map uh, that has the Pacific on it with China where east is up. So you're looking things from the Chinese perspective. Hmm. Uh, and that's that's their backyard, and they rightfully feel like they don't have uh, people with their best intents in line with Beijing athwart their sea lines of communication, which for an export-driven economy, which the, the Chinese are for both bringing in resources and exporting production, right? Uh, they they have a right and an understanding to want a big Navy and then a strong Navy. Uh, the question is what they intend to do with it. And that's where it comes in conflict, not only with, I think, America's strategic inertia towards the Pacific, where we make the rules and we enforce the rules, um, but also against what those rules are preventing the People's Republic of China from doing what they think they need to do not just to secure their economic lifelines, but also to complete. And uh, President Xi has been pretty direct about this. What is also needs to be done in order to complete what the Chinese consider to be their national reunification after the, the century of humiliation that began in the 1800s. So I am uh, I'm not an expert in the Pacific, uh, though I was in Alaska Station for three years and traveled to, you know, all the all over, you know, the PI, uh, Taiwan, not Taiwan, but Japan, uh, Thailand, etc. But I am some very knowledgeable on Ukraine. And I see that, you know, that is a, a, a really the the near abroad for the, for the old Russian Empire, the new Russian Empire. And, and there's a um, they see that as their sphere of the woods, but why? Why is why is uh, Taiwan important? I mean, you know, if we lose a battle in Ukraine, we're not going to, you know, degrade the American economy. Uh, but Taiwan is different. Why, why is Taiwan important to the American economy? Well, like everybody of a certain age, um, I was less than 10 years old when it took place, but at least in living in close living memory for most Americans, they remember the oil shocks of the 1970s. Sure. Uh, uh, before the, the joys of fracking and the Canadian tar sands coming online uh, and uh, other places, we were very dependent on oil from the Middle East. That's what made our economy go. Now, here we are in a different age where everything isn't... Um, oil, coal, chromium, steel, as Billy Joel would put in a song, uh, we rely on fiber optics, we re rely on technology, we rely on computers. And 
for very smart economic reasons, Taiwan, which is a relatively small country, not just in size, but in population. I think they're in the mid 20 millions population. I could be wrong here. It's not huge. It's kind of like the Netherlands, but they are the 1970s Middle Eastern oil when it comes to semiconductors, mm -hmm. which is what runs the modern economy. So if you want to be strictly a mercantilist, uh, the People's Republic of China, if they were to get control over Taiwan in the same manner they got control over Hong Kong, uh, if you're talking about you know, damage to the economy, access mm -hmm. to resource, control of the people, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, they would have a stranglehold on the rest of the world's semiconductors. Now, there's been some action here in the U.S. and elsewhere to diversify that, um, but that's going to take a while for that to come online, just like it took a while for oil to come online. So right. that's strictly the mercantile point of view. Now, let's look at it also if you want to strictly look at it from a military point of view. Uh, there's tons of great charts out there that outline the sea lines of communication, which is a fancy way of saying the highways on the sea, that resources coming in, whether we're talking about oil, coal, um, other types of raw materials coming in, or food for that matter, and what's going out, manufacturing goods. The most efficient way to move that is by sea, not just for China, but also for our close friends and the world's, I believe they're still the third largest economy, Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, they run right past Taiwan. Uh, Ta MacArthur, more than anybody else, uh, understood the importance in World War II of Taiwan. And what Taiwan also does for the Chinese, in, the, in addition to really having control over the sea lines of communication to go by it, both to her and also to her historic uh, rivalry uh, full of animosity with Japan, which gives them a lot of leverage there. It yeah. also, it, 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 when I talked before about taking that chart of the Western Pacific and rotating it 90 degrees so you're east-north, if you look along the, the coast of mainland China, there in the upper left-hand corner, they're blocked by Japan. In the center, they're blocked by Taiwan. And to the upper right-hand corner, they've got uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, and all the islands going through the South China Sea and Vietnam, and none of their neighbors like them. If they were able to take Taiwan inside their full control, then that unsinkable aircraft carrier and expands their coverage through uh, the full breadth of the Western Pacific, which makes their position more defensible. It also gives them the ability to do what they also want to do, is they want to keep those people in North America east of the international date line. I used to call it west of Wake, but then I realized not very many people know what Wake Island is or I could put it on a map, but the international date line uh, that I saw uh, Representative Mike Gallagher use a few times, I was like, that's, mm -hmm. I'm going to do what the smart congressman is doing. I'll start referring to that. I think the, the People's Republic of China, they would be very happy to walk onto a negotiating table when the conditions are ripe and looking at America and say, 
nothing personal. This is just business. You stay on your side of the international date line. We're going to stay on our side of the international date line. And if you need to do something over here, then you need to clear it through us first. If we want to do anything on the other side of the international date line, like off of Mexico or Hawaii or Cuba for California, that yeah, then we'll talk, talk to you about it. So that's why you know, Taiwan is so important because the, the Chinese have an economic reason to take it. They have a military reason to take it, but also they have a nationalist reason to take it. You don't underestimate the power of their desire to uh, not just take their rightful place in the world, but to play catch up and to make good on those events that took place in the 18 and 1900s uh, and in some places in the 1700s that they find as a disgraceful byproduct of previous ruling entities in China's uh, humiliation. So before we get into some of the tactical issues, um, I fully agree with everything you've said. And, you know, I have the same uh, what the word you, you don't have to agree with Russia, but you need to understand Russia. I think it's the same way That's with right. China. However, there is a, uh, a very um, aggressive uh a tyrannical regime in Beijing that wants to do a lot more, in my opinion, than just control the sea lanes in, in the Pacific. Um, and I mean, they have 2 million people in concentration camps as we speak. So anyway, I, I, that, that's a whole nother issue between understanding their history. What do, what do you think of that? No, I, I think they, they do have larger plans. It's not just they're near territorial waters. It's not just Taiwan. They, uh, and a lot of really smart people have written about this, and I think it's mm -hmm. spot on. And then the, the, the Chinese have, have said as much, is everybody likes to talk about you know, the rules-based international order, mm -hmm. uh, international norms, international mm -hmm. law. Those were all things that were created without significant input, if any, from the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, and so they they want to change this order, this understanding, and they will either do it um, the easy way or the hard way. And they want to do it while they they still can and while avoiding any any serious conflicts, though I am hesitant. There are people who made the same mistake before World War One saying, you know, Britain and Imperial Germany will never go to war. They're too well connected. People say yeah. the People's Republic of China won't go to war. They're, they're too reliant on the world economy. I don't think that mercantilist math is in alignment with either human history or the human condition. I think they very well may want, and this is something I've, heck, I think I first wrote something like this back in 2008 or so. Um, and you, we talked about it offline way before that. And I'm not the only person to have, but the Chinese, I do not think, are shy about when the fruit is ripe, that they will make a statement on the international stage in line with what the Japanese did in 1905 uh, during the Russo-Japanese War. You know, people mm -hmm. forget that uh, in the deck, just a few decades before uh, 1905, when the, the Japanese, you know, 
just utterly humiliated Imperial Russia, that the Japanese were a relatively backwards and feudal society. Mm -hmm. uh, and they made, they made a decision that they would not ignore the West anymore. They would compete with it. They did it really well. And that's when Japan walked onto the international stage. And that's, that's in the East Asian history. And I don't think the Chinese will be shy about doing that. In their mind, they've already kind of did that once in the Korean War when they almost pushed the Americans off the peninsula yeah, uh, at, a, at a huge national cost. But now they're in the position to do it. What is uh, what? And I, I believe we, we are getting better, but we still are very complacent about our understanding of being able to control the seas. I don't think that's uh, a given anymore especially yeah. in a very localized, uh, localized environment like you would find in, this, in the Straits of Taiwan. So I, I, to your point, um, you know, they, they literally essentially destroyed, I mean, Hong Kong was the jewel of the financial world, and they essentially destroyed that financial capability just to maintain power, I think. I mean, you may disagree, but it's not what it used to be financially. Correct, correct. Yeah. So they, I don't think they, I don't think, Profit in the long run is what they're after uh, in any of their endeavors. Let's move to the tactical region of this whole thing. Um, let's let's make a, an assumption that they will try to take Taiwan militarily at some point. How are they? How would they do that? How is the U.S. situated to stop it with our allies? And what needs to be done to move to further deter that? Well, you know, in some ways, you can't talk about that without, you know, looking back at the experience of the last 18 months in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it's helpful to look at the Russo-Ukrainian war, not unlike in 1939, people were looking at the less lessons of the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. There are hints at what you should be thinking about and concerned about. What are some opportunities? What are some vulnerabilities? Um, one thing that we have, the People's Republic of China did some stuff good and from their point of view, and we did some stuff rather short-sighted on our end that's made the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the fact that one of the things that, that dominates the Pacific is range and distance. Range and distance complicates everything. The Atlantic is a pond compared to the Pacific. And when you mm -hmm. want to broaden it, to the Indo-Pacific, it's, again, that's where having an actual globe comes in handy, a three-dimensional representation of the planet uh, that, I, that I have in my office that's fun to play with sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially because it's a Cold War version, so the Soviet Union is still there. But um, that gives you an understanding of just the size. That's, that is demanding in logistics. Uh, it's also that if you want to get to the fight on the other end of the Pacific, not only do you have to get there, to get to the fight, you are going to have to go through what uh, the People's Liberation Army Rocket Forces, PLARF, doesn't go as good as People's Liberation Army Navy plan, but PLARF, the Rocket Forces for short. Mm -hmm. What they've developed, while we were, again, NATO-focused, Cold War-focused, we had mm -hmm. the all these uh, arms control agreements that limited um, 
ballistic missile development and cruise missile development uh, because it was a Cold War mindset that the, the People's Republic of China wasn't signatory to. So right. they were able to develop a whole layered network of short range, medium range, intermediate range, and even inter, uh, ICBMs, uh, ballistic missiles, that there's an old uh, cliche that's always been around uh, since somebody had a longbow. You don't put your your logistics train, and once we developed airplanes, your airfields are your maintenance facility inside the range of your enemy's indirect fire or in the range of enemy artillery. It's mm -hmm. just not done because they're mm -hmm. too delicate, to, they're too fragile. When you do the range rings of the intermediate, medium, and short-range ballistic missiles that the Chinese have, uh, the whole constellation of air bases, naval bases, depots, storage, uh, ammunition dumps, et cetera, and so forth, that we have legacy in the, the Western Pacific going from uh, Japan all the way uh, down south. They're all within those rings, including Guam, yeah. that, that, that great American byproduct of the Spanish-American War, that um, you look at what the Russians have done to Ukraine with a rather limited number of uh, Tosca and Iskander missiles, mm -hmm. whether air-launched or from the, from the ground, and their cruise missiles as well. You can get an idea the damage those can do to fixed facilities. And we have very few, we actually have zero ability to uh, repair warships forward uh, that's not mobile. We have one very thin ability uh, to do uh, some depot level work from a, a submarine tender that's as old as I am. Uh, we have uh, very limited expeditionary ability to repair things. So the big question mark is, is are the People's Liberation Army rocket forces as good as, for instance, the Chinese-made tactical drones that we see in Ukraine are? Yeah. Uh, they, when you look at a lot of the little tactical drones that are being used, and we're not talking about the ones that cost $5 million. We're talking about the ones that cost two grand, five grand, six grand that everybody watches the videos of. Are those um, mostly made in Iran with the Chinese technology or, or do you know? No, the, well, the Russians are having some of the, 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 the guided drones that are used for weapons. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like the term kamikaze drone because I think it, it's, it kind of insults what the kamikazes actually were, but <laughs> that yeah. would be a podcast yeah. into itself. Yeah. But a, a lot of the small tactical ones are, are made in China. There yeah. are some that are American made, but there, when you talk to the Ukrainians, on the ground and i listened to an interview last week with a guy who, who spent a few weeks doing this um that the american made smaller tactical drones they're too expensive and they're not as high tech as the less expensive chinese drones mm -hmm. whether it comes to range interface or payload capacity so the people's republic of china that the people you know, having their mind as being less sophisticated. And that's simply not true. They can create very sophisticated items better than we can, and they are doing it. 
and they are preferred on the battlefield hmm. over American weapons. So if they're able to do that there, are they able to create um, warhead accuracy at a 1990 level, i.e. the Pershing II, mm-hmm. which some of their missile warheads look surprisingly similar to, knock, knock, pretty good yeah. espionage on the Chinese part. Why invent things? You can just steal them. Is yeah. that all you, and that's, is that really all you need to do to take out ships that are pier side, to p- take out repair facilities, to take out um, oil storage? Uh, it sure is. So what about, as, missile, what about missile defense? I mean, wh- where are we on all that? Well, it's all a numbers game. Yeah. Let's say that I have, which if I'm wearing an American flag on my shoulder, I do. I have the best anti-air weapons money can buy. Yeah. And uh, let's say that I can, I'm just going to use a round number here um, just because mm-hmm. round numbers are, are un- unclassified and convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say that I hit 80% of everything I shoot at. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's say I have a hundred missiles and I'm able to launch all 100 of them launch. There's no failure to launch failure to transition from booster. They're right. all, you know, good union made missiles. So they all work. Uh, so a hundred get in the air. Now those 180 of them succeed in taking out the incoming threat. That's great. That's wonderful. What if I have 200 coming in? Yeah. Sure. So I've shot down 80% of my target. So I shot down 80 missiles, but 120 got through. Of those 120, let's say that uh, the, the snarky people were right about the accuracy of the Chinese missiles. Let's say that uh, they're kind of like, uh, there was another interesting article that came out recently about we've intercepted, uh, the Imperial We uh, intercepted some ships probably down, bound for Yemen. Mm-hmm. full of North Korean weapons, mm-hmm. and we just diverted those and gave those to the Ukrainians. Well, the Ukrainian weapons that they're using are like the, the unguided the grad rockets. Right. The, the Ukrainians, when they see their North Korean manufacturer, they warn everybody to back up because they right. misfire. Right. Not all of them launch. They're just not reliable, but they still work. Yeah. So let's say that, that they're North Korean quality. So the 120 to get through, only, only half of them actually get an experience get inside the circle area probability you want and explode. Okay. That's 60. Okay. How many of the target sets were you looking at? One intermediate range ballistic missile impacting uh, the depot level maintenance facility in Guam. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does that do to that facility? That that's where the math is. And so, and that goes into the mistake that we made on our range. So we want to go in and we want to engage these launch sites Um, on the east coast of China. We have made decisions over the last 25 years that took our greatest ability to project national will internationally, which is the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. That power projection uh, force, if the aircraft carrier is the night, the Mm -hmm. air wing is its lance. Mm -hmm. And you want a strong lance, you want a well-constructed lance, and you want a long lance that's going to make first contact with the enemy. Mm-hmm. What we have done, for reasons best explained by accountants and people who are more interested in uh, a political cycle than preparing <clears throat> the military, is we went and took out that lance and we cut it in half. Yeah. And said, 
that that's lighter, that's cheaper, and really that's all you need on tournaments. And then in the Knights coin, hey, I'm doing more than just tournaments here. You can give me a you know give me a, a call next week, and I got to take off with the count and go fight the Ottomans. They go, yeah, right. you'll be fine. The Ottomans won't bother. And two weeks later, he's going into battle against the Ottomans with a six foot lance, and the Ottomans have got a twelve foot lance. Yeah. So. That's what we've done to our, so we have a, a short legged air wing with no organic tankers and the air force, because we have this incredibly myopic joint concept in procurement, the air force has promised the joint staff that they can do all the tanking requirements and the air in the Navy said, Oh, that's great. I'll agree to that. If you'll let me have this toy. So we have no organic tanking on our carriers. So we're relying on these land-based Tankers, mm-hmm. you know, KC-10s, KC-135s. Um, yeah, the new tanker force. The new yeah. tanker that may or may not work in numbers. But mm-hmm. these are big, delicate planes. If I've got three or four fragmentation warheads off a uh, intermediate-range ballistic missile landing on the ramp, um, and I take out half of this tanker fleet, is the Air Force going to expend those tanker assets to refuel the Navy? Are they going to use those tanker assets to refuel what few heavy bombers we have coming west with cruise missiles and the F-22s coming out of uh, your your adopted home, Alaska, uh, to escort them? And that that's the, the, the that's the thing that we've done to our long lance. And there's no short term fix on that. There's really only one fix on this. And it's a low confidence fix because I, I don't we haven't changed our procurement habits and mindset. And that's the replacement for the uh, the Super Hornet. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll just have to see what what type of range that has, because the F-35 is incredibly short range. And that's that's that that's what what concerns me the most is the fact that uh, one thing we do know in war is uh, to, to paraphrase Rumsfeld, you know, you, mm-hmm. you go to war with the Navy you have, not the Navy you wish you had. Mm-hmm. Missions will have to be accomplished. Targets will have to be serviced. And mm-hmm. the fleet commander is going to be given a target set that he's going to have to take out. He's mm-hmm. going to have X number of, of tomahawks to do it with. He's going to have Y number of a very few uh, precision weapons that he can launch from his super hornets, but he's got to get them there. And these have yeah. to get closer and closer. And so we're going to have uh, a lot of airmen that are not coming home because they mm-hmm. have to, to get in closer than they need to be, which gets them inside the uh, rather large right. number of uh, People's Liberation Army Air Force forces, <clears throat> surf air missiles. Uh, then you're also going to have warships, uh, not to mention the carriers are going to have to get closer to launch that we're also going to have the uh, the warships are going to have to get closer to launch their their T lambs to get into their launch baskets. Not as big of a problem as the air wing, but and that's just hitting those um, fixed facilities that we know where they are. A lot of these are mobile systems. So a lot of people think of the Pacific as a as a naval uh, you know ship war, and it's actually what you're saying. It's more of an air war. Uh, it's both, uh, and yeah. that's. Another frustrating part, you know, we were talking about the influence of, earlier about NATO and Europe and the war going on in Ukraine, plus the fact that we were just coming off a couple of decades of 
basically imperial policing actions in Central yeah. and Southwest Asia. Uh, well, we, conflict. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So go to, um, again, go to your globe and look at the United States. Look at where our interests are. We are naturally and constitutionally, uh, if you if you can put an asterisk there for air power that didn't exist back when our constitution was written, but mm. we are geographically a maritime and aerospace power. Yeah. So you would think that if you had a war in the Western Pacific that predominantly is going to be maritime and aerospace, that we would be properly funded to do that. We're not. Yeah. We have a huge active duty army and land forces. We're not a land power. Germany's a land power. Russia's a land power. The People's Republic of China is a land power. The United States, Japan, Australia, those are maritime and aerospace powers. And one thing that we're not having success in in D.C., partially legislative, partially political, partially inertia, mm -hmm. a lot of it, though, is just plain ignorance, uh, is we have not adjusted our budgetary emphasis the way it should be in order to prepare our country for the real challenge that we're most likely to face in the next decade. And that's a maritime and aerospace war in the Pacific. If we wind up in a land war in the Pacific, uh, we have done something very wrong. Yeah. Well, um, we've gone 30 plus minutes here. And, um, let me ask you this. Uh, obviously, this is a conversation that it's going to take a while to get through. I've got a lot more I want to ask you. Can I have you back on a few weeks down the road and, and talk oh, about some more of these issues? Absolutely. You know, draw a line at your at your question list, and if you you got some time, you'd like me to come back to pick up the conversation. I'd I'd be honored. Well, thank you very much. How can people get to your podcast? How can they find out more about what you're doing and your writing? I know you have a big Substack. Yep. The um, I'm at. Um, cdr salamander all one word uh at dot substack.com that's where my substack is i linked all my podcasts there uh, people can also just google midrats podcast and that will get the podcast matter of fact we have one coming up uh, this sunday we usually do it live on sundays and then we upload the podcast later because we have people that like to join in the conversation mm -hmm. uh, we're having on a returning guest uh, chris raleigh who just retired from the naval reserve as a captain uh, interesting thing about Chris, we had him on about a year ago because he was actually <laughs> he was he was headed to do his reservist rotation in Ukraine when the war kicked off. Um, wow. And so so we're going to look at I think you may have noticed a couple of weeks ago, the the, the president's comms shot rather ham fistedly without thinking too much about what they were doing, put out a announcement that they're going to activate up to 3000 reservists yeah. for service in Europe. Uh, that was kind of a normal thing. They just didn't communicate it well. But we're mm -hmm. going to talk about not just the role of the Naval Reserve in Ukraine and Europe, but also just how we are using or in some cases abusing the reserves in peacetime to kind of patch yes. over other items. So that's going to be our conversation on Sunday. Great. Well, we'll try to uh, broaden uh, each other's audience. So. <laughs> Thank Perfect. you so much for your time. And uh, I'm definitely going to have you back because this series is going to keep going as, as this conflict gets closer. So thank you, sir, for coming on. I appreciate it. Welcome, Todd. It's been a great conversation. Take care.